A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Milne This time, there's this very classical way of channeling ambition, which is, or the way that we think about channeling ambition, which is that it should all go into your career and that if you are an ambitious person, you therefore have this very high-flying career. But plenty of women steer their ambition into other areas, at least for a while. And if they can do that, why can't men? True gender equality is acknowledging that men get to have dreams too and that men don't have to pursue CEO-ship or a traditional career track just because they've been expected to their whole lives. Women, ambition and choices about career and relationships coming up on The Broad Experience. When I first started out in the workforce, I never thought of myself as being ambitious in the traditional sense. I had no desire to get to the corner office. I was what I called ambitious to be happy. I'd been a pretty miserable teenager. And for me, that meant a fulfilling job and a good relationship and plenty of interests outside of work. Over the years, I've watched with some envy and self-doubt as friends of mine have climbed the corporate ladder and my career's careened all over the place. Both my guests were thinking along these same lines a few years ago as they approached their mid-40s. We're exactly the same age. I'm Hannah Shank. I work for a think tank and I'm a writer. I'm Elizabeth Wallace. I am also a writer um, for magazines and branded content and advertising. They're also co-authors of the book, The Ambition Decisions, What Women Know About Work, Family and the Path to Building a Life. Hannah and Liz met in college and they've always kept in touch. Liz saw the print media industry shrink like crazy while she was in it. She found she was spending more time with her kids than she ever had before and freelancing. Hannah was running her own business and also working around her kids' schedules. But were things perfect at home? No. And were these careers good enough? As Hannah put it, she knew a lot of women with the word global in their title. She and Liz didn't have that. We just found that we were both at the same point in our lives of feeling like dissatisfied with where we were with our careers and with our marriages and with our parenting and like trying to do all of this stuff all at the same time and feeling like we were not doing a good job or being where we wanted to be at any given moment. And sort of wondering if there was this like mythical woman out there who had all of this figured out and was like just doing a superb job at all of it. The two of them had met at Northwestern back in 1989. They'd been in a sorority together. They remembered their friends in that sorority as ambitious to a woman. Everyone had big plans for her future. They decided to track down those women, over 40 of them, including those they'd lost touch with, and interview them about what their lives were like now and how they compared to their early dreams. Basically, how were they making it work? Because surely they were making it work. 
the start of this was to talk to the women that we had known in college and find somebody who just basically proved to ourselves the point that like it's actually us we're the ones who can't handle it somebody out there has got it figured out they've got it it's all perfect they've got the perfect life well no I was gonna I was gonna say one of the quite early on in the ambition chapter you write we started this project hoping to find women who'd figured it all out instead we discovered a lot of our friends had lives more or less like ours and were figuring it out in real time every day and you discover that after having interviewed I think you said four stay-at-home mothers in a row and you were quite surprised right we were because before that I think we had interviewed several what we would later call high achievers who were C-suite executives or marketing executives who were the primary or sole earner in their family, who had never taken a break from their career, who had prioritized their career, and who had been really, really gung-ho about it, very type A. So when we first started these interviews, we thought, oh, okay, we're going we're gonna to see a lot of that. And then when we did interview several stay-at-home moms in a row, we were like, oh, well, that's interesting. And they all seemed happy, and they all seemed content and confident in the decision that they had made. And at that time, I was, I had given up my childcare, and I had not given up my work, but I had compromised to only do my work during the time my children were in school, which I think a lot of women that I knew who were active in in their children's schools were in a similar situation, who were in some sort of freelance arrangement. And so I empathized in some ways with the stay-at-home moms, and I also I also had sort of this tugging feeling inside of me of like, wow, you had so much potential. Why did you give that up? Liz says she was quite judgy at first, but that was before they dug into these women's lives and found out more about why they made the choices they did. Liz and Hannah's friends were from a mix of backgrounds. Some were the first members of their family to go to college, Others grew up in privilege. Many were in between. Some, like Liz, were daughters of first-generation immigrants. Most were white, and most were in heterosexual relationships. In the book, Liz and Hannah divide the women they talk to into three groups. The high achievers, the flex lifers, and the opt-outers. More on all these in a bit. But yeah, what was so interesting um, in reading the book is reading about all the ways in which ambition kind of goes down a slightly different path, right? And whether it's uh, women who did give up their careers for their kids or women who, what you call flex lifers. So they are working, but they they perhaps work fewer hours or they work a very normal 40-hour week in order to have a life with most of them have families. What was striking to us about the stay-at-home mothers was that they didn't seem like people who did, were not ambitious. They continued to be ambitious. Um, they, in addition to taking care of their children, all did things like they were all the president of the PTA, or they were all the president of the Neighborhood Association, or they were still like out there and running things and clearly like driven and wanting to be in charge of stuff and wanting to channel their ambition in ways that just didn't happen to be work. And that's also true of the flex lifers. Again, this group is made up of what I imagine to be the majority of women, people who want a career, but a career that doesn't eat their life. But Hannah and Liz both live in New York, and we are surrounded by high achievers in these parts. So at first, they weren't sure what to make of this group. They wondered, were these women just phoning it in at work? Then finally, they realised 
what this actually is, is a conscious decision to say, I'm good where I am with like, I want to work, but I also want to do other things. Like I want to have a hobby or I want to, you know, meet my kid at three o'clock every day because that's important to me. Or I want to do trail running or whatever it is. And that they had different ways that they wanted to channel their ambition. And one thing that we talk about a lot in the book is that there's this very classical way of channeling ambition, which is, or the way that we think about channeling ambition, which is that it should all go into your career. And that if you are an ambitious person, you therefore have this very high flying career. And that's what ambition looks like. It's outward. Yes, it's outward and it's, it's career directed. It's you are killing it at work and you are recognized for killing it at work. And the high achievers, they were able to power ahead because they didn't mind not being the most present parent in the world. Most of them had kids and most of those had a stay-at-home spouse. They felt they could stay late or go in early because they knew their spouse or their nanny had it covered. They ceded control at home to achieve at work and they didn't feel bad about it. The majority of the women featured in the book are married with children because by the time you hit your 40s, most women are. But not all of us. You're mostly talking about people who are in a partnership. And I really wonder, as someone who was single for a long time, if some of the women you interviewed were single. And maybe maybe they were divorced or maybe they'd always been single, but, but maybe single without kids and what their lives were like. I mean, were they all hard charging? Because I'm always saying, gosh, just because you don't have kids, it actually doesn't mean that you want to work 20 hours a day. You want a life just as much as anyone else. Yeah. No, we, so there were definitely women who um, were not married Two women actually got married while we were in the process of doing this, so in their 40s. Two women got divorced while we were in the process of of interviewing. And the women who were single were not all people who constantly worked. Um, They, some of them were very successful, but some of them, you know, had desires beyond work just as anybody, you know, just as people in a partnership would. So there was one woman who had um, a management consulting career, and at some point said, this is just not for me, and I want to live in Colorado. And she moved to a small town in Colorado and started a business so that she could hike in the mountains and ski and have that kind of life. For me, one story in particular stood out. I remember one story that I read toward the end of the book, a sorority member who had, yeah, she'd married later. She'd married a guy who had a son, as I have. And and it was really interesting because it's very similar to my feelings. She said to you something like, well, now I'm, you know, I've got this partner and I want to do things with him. I want to spend time with him because she hadn't had that for quite a while before. And that's exactly how I feel. Like, I don't want to... I mean, I have so much less time to work now, even though I'm not a biological mother. My my stepson's with us half the week and so much more of my time is going to other humans than than it used to. And and that's, of course, that's, you know, it, it's productivity wise. It's not great, but it's great in every other way. Um, and I, I just I want to spend I want to spend time with these people that I didn't have in my life before. Yeah, we we loved her story for that reason, because I think that. You know, especially if you were somebody who went, you know, who from the early days of childhood was sort of told, like, you're going to go out and you're going to do, you know, big stuff and you're going to, this is what your life is going to look like. And you're surrounded by other people who are climbing the corporate ladder or who are having a lot of career success, that there is some internal 
guilt or internal criticism around like, well, why doesn't my life, isn't that what my life should look like? And why doesn't it look like that? And I think that was part of the starting point of this book was looking at that and saying like, well, other people that I worked with are now, um, you know, executive, top executives. And how come that didn't happen for me? And that some of that is actually a a choice and a, a perfectly fine and legitimate choice to make. And we loved that woman's story in particular because she was somebody who was very ambitious, had started her own company, was doing really well, and was kind of wrestling with like, well, but now I actually have the opportunity to have this other piece of my life that I haven't really had before. And am I kind of quitting if I give up the career piece, which I've worked so hard for, but at the same time, sort of struggling with like, is it okay to be the kind of person who just wants to have a personal life? Changing tack, you focus a lot in the book on everyone's so busy, people's lives are bursting at the seams. I bet a lot of these women don't get seven hours sleep a night. You know, they are are totally burning the candle at both ends when it comes to whatever they're doing for their children, their jobs. Most of them are, it seems, doing more in the home than their male partners. It really jumped out at me from these pages. Control, control, control. Women really love to control things can you talk a little bit about that because um I mean this is part of the reason why we're so exhausted well we yes it is and we one of the things that we we talk about specifically related to parenting and control is that a lot of these women they did say that they wanted well two things that they wanted to control everything and that when it came to parenting, they felt like they had to be the one to do everything to make the pediatrician appointments, which, you know, since you read the book, Ashley, that 100% of our of our friends who had children make the pediatrician appointments, even if they didn't take them to the appointments, they wanted to be the one to make it on the calendar, see it there, that for them, the control issue, part of that was focused around the things that they did as a mother that made them feel essentially like a mother. So what we talk about is kind of identifying the things that are inherently important to you as a mother, and then also identifying the things that aren't as important that you can delegate to somebody else or just not do, you know, like, do you really need to be doing laundry three times a week? Maybe not. Or can you maybe drop the ball two days or even one day a week and not make lunch those two days, like not make a homemade bento box lunch and just have your kid take school lunch to just give yourself a break on those two days. And then just the, the, the relinquishing of the control over those things, it seems really minor. But for me personally, I mean, I live this every day of my life and we talk about this all the time about things that I can really let go of. You know, there'll be times like, I'm so stressed out. I'm so tired. And Hannah's like, why don't you order in tonight, Liz? And I'm like, I don't, we, we don't order in. We just don't do that. We're not that family. And I, you know, feel bad and beat myself up if I'm not making a homemade meal, even if it's just like some steamed vegetables and sauteed chicken. She does do takeout a bit more often these days. And I have to say here, it's not just women who feel this way about their parenting. My husband makes gourmet breakfasts and school lunches for his son too. Crepes with Nutella, anyone? Pasta with homemade pesto? Liz and Hannah also heard from a lot of women who didn't want their male partners doing various stuff at home or with the kids because they didn't do it right. Our big takeaway there was, you know what? 
see you for the sake of making yourself sane, for the sake of moving toward gender equality in marriages and smashing the patriarchy and for giving yourself more time to really kill it at work or, or get more sleep or exercise or the things, self-care, the things that you, that you also want to do well in your life. Let your husband empty the dishwasher and stop complaining about how he does it because you know what? The dishes are going to get clean or they're not going to get clean. And is it really going to kill you to eat on a maybe not a perfectly clean dish? Let somebody else like your husband do the work at home and, and let that and get comfortable sitting with things that aren't done exactly the way you want to, because it's going to give you more time and it's going to create, I think, more harmony in a marriage. I mean, we've talked about this endlessly. Do you want to add to that? Yeah. Well, so I, I think the other piece of that is figuring out the things that you absolutely have to be in control of. So we have one story in the book, which is one of my favorites about a woman who asked her husband to take their daughter to go see, uh, it wasn't a pediatrician, but you know, a specialist. And she said that when he came back, the report that she got was so unsatisfactory that she had to go and make a second appointment and get a second opinion to do it herself. So <laughs> men can be quite uh, uh, concise in their descriptions. <laughs> yes. Well, or it just wasn't like, it, it, obviously she felt like this has to be done this very specific way. So either she needed to change her feeling on that or just say, you know what, this is just a thing that like, I, it's not possible for me to delegate and I'm going to do it. Liz, because you're you're married to a woman, what was it like? Because you are largely writing about people in heterosexual partnerships, because this is where all this uh, inequality can occur. But I mean, did it? Did you marvel at this, or did it? Is your life perfectly balanced? Um, my my life. Well, none of our lives are perfectly balanced, um, and mine certainly is not. But I did marvel at it a lot, and Hannah and I have talked about this a lot, and I. I haven't done it yet, but I want to. I want to write something about the emotional labor, about how emotional labor is different in my same-sex marriage. I'm not actually technically married, but partnered for many, many years. I've been with my partner for 21 years, and that some some of the issues around emotional labor and the breakdown of domestic duties among a lot of the friends that we interviewed did resonate with me and feeling the need to control everything in the household and with the kids 100% is an affliction that I grapple with. However, the breakdown of parenting duties, domestic duties, and responsibilities is really arbitrary in my house. And it's done based on who has more time, who has more interest, and who might be better at something. And talking about who does what or who should do what, as Liz just said, in her house, that stuff doesn't fall along traditional gender lines because they're two women. But she and Hannah found most of their friends who were married to men, these women in their 40s, they had pretty traditional views and not just about the home front. In a lot of our friends' relationships, the default was my husband's career takes priority, even if 
that didn't actually make sense for the two careers that people had. So um, we had a couple cases of people who, and, and one woman in particular, actually, who was a rabbi and sort of a mid-level rabbi. And she talks about how she kept waiting for her husband's career to take off and that they talked for a long time about how his career was going to be the one and she was going to be more of the supporting role um, for you know bolstering his career. And then at some point they realized actually, he didn't want his career to take off. He was totally fine doing what he was doing. And she was actually the one who was interested in having a more demanding and more challenging career. So once they had that conversation, they could, you know, adjust. And that was ultimately what happened. She ended up getting a senior rabbi position and the family moved for her work. And he now is more responsible on the home front. But the degree to which even these women who, you know, I think, are, are pretty feminist women just defaulted to, well, he's a man, so therefore it's his career that we're focused on. I want to jump ahead to money because I love the fact that you focus on this piece of advice that I think women take to heart more than men, which is do what you love, follow your passion. Can you talk about that? We noticed that in our friend group, there were women who felt very strongly that they needed to support themselves. And there were women who simply did not feel that way. The women who felt like they needed to support themselves ended up being people who supported themselves. And they didn't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about what is my passion and what do I love? They thought about how do I make money doing something that is intellectually interesting to me and that I you know, don't hate going to every day. She says the whole do-what-you-love thing gathered steam right around the time we all graduated from college in the early 90s, and it's only gained strength since then. The co-working space WeWork, they use it as their mantra. Really, does everybody at WeWork go every day and love absolutely every minute of what they're doing? It's just such a burden to put on people. And we, in the course of looking at our data, felt like this disproportionately affects women because on top of being told do what you love, women are also not told do something that pays the bills. They don't get the message that they need to be the breadwinner. Now, this certainly has been the case traditionally, just as it's been the case that families generally didn't talk to their girls about money. But I wonder how true this still is. I'd love to hear from young listeners about how you were raised to think about a career. Hannah says the thing is, it's fine to have a job that is low paying that you love when you don't have kids. But then a lot of women talked about how as soon as they had their first child, they were making less than the nanny and it didn't make sense for them to continue working, which we somewhat snarkily maybe were like, well, what did you either like, what did you expect? You know, you, you know how much you're making, you know, you're going to have a baby, you know, you've chosen a career that isn't lucrative. So, you know, if you haven't gotten the message of this income isn't just like fun money, this income is to support yourself, that it's very easy to just step away from it and say like, well, I really should, I want to be home with the baby anyway. And I, you know, and I think that women on top of all of that have this added pressure of like, well, is your job valuable enough to keep you away from your child, which is really like the thing that you should be craving to be with. But when it comes to that, well, there's no point me working when all my salary would just go to pay for childcare. First, Liz says. Why do you think of childcare as a line item only on the woman's salary? Childcare is a line item on a family's salary. Childcare is 
is money that should come from both partners' salaries if both are working because it's something that benefits both partners. And second, you've heard this before, but having childcare, even if it does eat your salary, having that childcare can allow you to progress in your career and earn far more later on. Look at it as an investment. But for a number of reasons, women tend not to think that way. That combination of feeling like your career isn't worth it because it's not earning enough, um, it's not worth it because you really should be home with your children and that takes away from your your time with your children, or because you don't earn as much as your partner and you think their career is inherently, for whatever reason, more important than yours, all those, I just, I have felt it in my own career and I've seen it with so many friends, it is, can be such a career killer for women. Something to think about. Finally, Liz says, before you commit to a relationship, consider what your expectations are for each of you and question them. True gender equality is acknowledging that men get to have dreams too and that men that men don't have to pursue CEO-ship or, or a traditional career track just because they've been expected to their whole lives. If they, if they want to be a flex lifer uh, or an opt-outer and partner with somebody who has a different configuration, if they want to stay home and raise children, that they should be able to do that. Or if they want to pursue a creative career and have a partner who has a more stable, high-earning job so that they can, they can have this ambition balance in their lives, that they should be able to do that. And it really is my hope that this younger generation will, men and women, will talk together about what they want their lives to look like. But I do think it really is important for both men and women to specifically articulate this. Like it's not going to happen by accident. You have to talk about these things and not just think that they're going to flush out a certain way because you're both people who are committed to gender equality. I mean, maybe for some people it will, but in our experience and the women that we talked to, the women who specifically had these conversations and continued having them over the course of their relationship and their careers were the ones who seemed to better be able to actualize what they wanted both in their marriages and in their careers and in their parenting. Elizabeth Wallace. Thanks to her and Hannah Shank for being my guests on this show. Before they wrote The Ambition Decisions, Hannah and Liz wrote a series of articles for The Atlantic on the same topic. I will link you to those pieces under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. That's the show for this time. As always, I am keen to hear from you. You can email me at ashley at thebroadexperience.com, tweet me or post on the Facebook page. And if you'd like to become a supporter of this one-woman show, head over to the support tab at thebroadexperience.com. I am grateful for every contribution. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. See you next time.